Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tokyo Fintech Podcast. Today, I'm here with Marta Lina, who's the founder of Soul Startups. Hi, Marta. Hello. So Soul, of course, is very close to us. And so we had some good experiences recently doing a panel together that you hosted with Soul Startup. Thank you again for that. But let's start at the beginning. What was your path to Soul? My connection with Seoul or Korea in general actually dates back to the 1990s where my parents actually, my, to be specific, my dad came here as a diplomat. I'm originally from Poland. So Poland at the beginning of the 90s, Poland was a freshly, fresh democratic country. It was in a very bad need of diplomats or anyone who could be a diplomat, meaning anyone who could speak relatively good English and not embarrass the country too much. They had an open recruitment pretty much. Nowadays to become a diplomat, you have to go through a whole process. But whereas here, you could just jump on, do a test and go on for it. My dad applied for that diplomatic job. And first of all, we were actually supposed to go to Malaysia, but the person my dad was replacing got his contract extended. So they told him, oh, you're going to Korea. And my dad's first question was, oh, which one? <laughs> which was actually, it's a valid question because Poland also has an embassy or at least had an embassy in Pyongyang. So it turned out we're going to South Korea. So we went as a whole family and spent here four years. I actually, I never learned proper Korean then. I was sent to an international school. As a, I guess, a young child, I, at that time, I thought everybody, all children moved to live in Korea. So when I came back to Poland, I did have a bit of a reverse cultural shock because I discovered that not everybody speaks English, not everybody lived abroad, and it was a bit of a disappointment. Then I came back here again in 2008 as an exchange student, randomly pretty much. I really wanted to go and travel far and beyond Europe as a student to live abroad. And the problem I faced at that time was my mom, who was like, oh, you're going to go to a country I don't know about because the countries I was throwing out were pretty, pretty exotic on the you know mom scale. She was like, oh, you're going to go somewhere that I don't know. And what if something happens to you and you die and I don't know about it? So I told her, well, why don't I go to Korea? My school happened to have an exchange program with Korean school. So I told her, why don't I go to Korea? You know, people there, you've lived there. First of all, you've lived there. So you know that people don't randomly die on the streets. And the second of all, if I do die, then you at least you know who to contact to go and pick up my body. She was like, okay, fine. So I went there for an exchange program, for a semester exchange program. I came back and having partied my way through the exchange program. And I told my parents it was amazing and I want to come back for more. And my parents were like, well, okay, whatever, but we're not paying a penny for that. So I had to kind of weasel my way back into Korea. And I managed to come across the Korean government scholarship program, which now I know is a very popular option. But back then it was a new thing on the block. I got in and came back here in 2009 and have stayed ever since then, pretty much to make a long, long story short. Actually, it was a long story long, but yeah. That's amazing. So it was the most mom-friendly country, but also one of the furthest away. What was the alternative on your list, the more exotic so, places? Actually, they're not exotic. First of all, they're not exotic now, and they were not exotic for, for me at the time, but... I guess my mom was really anxious because they were so far away. So I did mention Australia. Yeah, Australia has a lot of deadly animals. So maybe mom was right about that one. <laughs> Taiwan, South America. And my mom was like, oh no, like, oh, you're going to get really going to get really killed there. 
<laughs> and I ended up in Korea out of all the places in the world. Obviously, you've been there now a long time, so you must like it. I do, but having been here so long, I also see the flaws. It's like when you're of your country of origin, like, yes, you love it because you're proud of being, in my case, Polish. But I also see a lot of problems with the Polish society, politics and economics. And same with Korea. After the first few years of like, hurrah, you kind of start to understand the culture, the system. And you also kind of start understanding what the flaws are. Because at the beginning, as a foreigner, you're like, oh, I shouldn't judge that because I'm a guest here. But after so many years, I'm not really a guest anymore. I've kind of settled in here and I'm part of the scene as well. So I do believe I have a bit of a right to be judgmental here and there. And you then also worked for a traditional Korean company, right? Couldn't be more traditional or more <laughs> important than Samsung Electronics. Yes, I did. So after I graduated, or actually before I graduated, I applied for a job in Samsung. And a lot of foreigners working in the Samsung HQ, they get headhunted from pretty nice Ivory League schools, recruited from various like technological universities and places like that. But in my case, I kind of applied through the same process as Korean new employees apply, recruits apply. So I had to go through the whole process of writing a whole day of tests. So kind of like SAT level test on, on top of an, they were also did an intelligence test, which was, I was like, mm, I don't know, that's going to work. To be honest, I did not expect to pass the written test because I was very hangover that day, but I did. <laughs> Apparently that helped. And then they invited me for an interview, which meant that they took us like in buses from Seoul to Suwon, where the HQ is located. And we had a whole day of interviews, some one with the executives, like an executive, like a traditional executive interview where they ask you, oh, like, what do you want to be in 10 years kind of thing? One was a case study where you had like 30 minutes to prepare a case study based on a fact sheet and present it in front of a panel. And then the last one was a group discussion. So they teamed you up, rounded everybody up, like 15 people into one room and had you discuss in a team. Yeah, I got in, <laughs> which was a bit of a surprise. I did not even expect to get in. Like I said, I rolled into the exam after a whole night of drinking. So it did come as a bit of, I think it came as a bit of a surprise to everyone, but mostly to myself. But then when I did, I became very dedicated to my job. And it does not help that Samsung makes sure that the new employees, at least at the beginning, are very much in love with their jobs. What do they do specifically to make it sticky? Okay, so as a new employee, you have to go through, I think it's called like a camp, like a new orientation camp for three weeks where, you know, you get the usual stuff, team building, like working out various business models, getting to be a fun and cool new employee, team competitions and stuff like that. But then there's like some weird things that I don't think I've never worked in another corporation, but I'm pretty sure don't happen in other corporations. Like for instance, you have to learn the Samsung song and then you have to do learn the Samsung dance as well. And do like your team has to do a very variation based on the Samsung dance in front of everybody. It's a little bit like a cheerleader dance, except it's six minutes long. We would stay up until 3 a.m. to learn the stupid dance. And looking back, I'm like, why, why did we do that? That was just a stupid dance. But we were so excited to do that dance. It was like the most amazing thing. And then you get dispatched. So during the first three weeks, you have people not only from Samsung Electronics, but all the Samsungs together mixed up. 
And then after that, after those three weeks, and by three weeks, you don't even leave. Like you're stuck in the middle with nowhere, no, no communication with the outside world. When you leave, you get dispatched to your company where you have more one or two weeks of more orientation, more like a traditional one, like telling you, introducing you to all the online systems and things like that. And then I got dispatched to my division and the division orientation started with us working for three weeks in a factory to learn the value of manual work. In the meantime, by that time, it was almost summer. So I joined in winter and it was almost summer. And the, the, at the beginning of summer, they sent all the new employees to, it's called a new employee festival or summer festival. And what you do is the most important highlight is that you have a ceremony and festival in front of the biggest executives in, in, in Samsung and all the Samsung groups. And that includes, again, doing the dance and singing the song. And it's amazing because I remember the feeling when I was doing that, I was so proud. I thought I was part of something incredible. And that feeling that pretty much stayed on with me for most of my time in Samsung. I was before me, before myself, first had to come Samsung and the, the success of Samsung. So successful brainwashing. And so your co-workers, your colleagues that joined with you at the same time, Korean colleagues, were they expecting yeah. at that time that the life physically would be dedicated to Samsung? That would be lifetime employment? You know what? Most of them have left. <laughs> Most of them have left. Those who have stayed, I think they have become disillusioned and they're staying there mostly for the money and the work security. They have families, they have kids. So, you know, you have to pay the mortgage. That's pretty much from what I gather from what they're saying. It's what, that's what keeps them there in the first place. I think other than the executives, like the old date executives, to be fair, I don't think anyone is that dedicated anymore to Samsung. I think it was the generation like when Ikoni was like taking over and he made the engineers do that, I don't know, 70 kilometer track up the mountains to learn about the mistakes of making flawed product. After that generation, I don't think anyone ever came close to that feeling of pride and engagement. Those people, they lived in Samsung. And to be fair, we also, I had moments in Samsung where I pretty much slept for a couple of days under my desk, but I was not a happy camper about that. But at the same time, I do remember that I, at that time I felt as yes, I'm not happy, but I'm doing this for my team. Team building, successful, I guess. The Korean work culture has a reputation of being a hard drinking culture. Is that still part of the culture? Well, yes and no. So, so the government actually banned or they gave guidelines. Like Korea, Korean law is a bit more than the law. It's more like a guideline. But they gave guidelines that, oh, no drinking and no like forcing people to go out and drink after work. And from what I know, from especially in Samsung nowadays, they're not allowed to go out, say after, I think, 9 p.m. or 8 p.m. They have, they have to send people. But that is only covers what they pay with the company card. What it does not cover is that your team leader might casually say at 10 p.m., oh, before we go home, let's go for a drink. And yes, technically you can tell him, oh, no, I'm not going. That's... But in a lot of cases, you still feel pressure to say yes, especially if you're a young employee that doesn't really have much of a backbone. And that wasn't my case. I was just a kid fresh out of school and I really wanted to impress my bosses. So saying no, I don't feel like I really want to go home and have a life in my eyes back then was not really an option. 
Whereas with nowadays, I have no problem. Like if someone says, oh, let's go drinking all night. I'm like, no, like if you want to, that's fine. But I don't want to be part of that. I have important things to cook in my life. So one of the important things, of course, is then soul startups. So how did you get to creating the community? It started in a bar, surprisingly, as good stories go. Soul Startup started about a little over three years ago. It came out of a need. I was hanging out with two fellow expats here working in startups in Korea. I was then a manager of an accelerator program, and we were just worried that there's not really a community here in Korea. The, the Korean scene is mostly driven by the government saying that, oh, do startups, here's the money. It was never a root grown initiative from the entrepreneur saying like, we want to do something for other founders. And on top of that, no events in English and very, I would say very unfriendly access to the resources and the startup scene. So what we decided to do, first of all, we were complaining over drink. And then we thought, oh, well, why don't we try to solve that? Like at least form a place where we can help each other out because I experienced something, you experienced something like our shared knowledge gives us an advantage. So we opened the Slack channel which we still use to this day, made a, a pretty ugly landing page. And that's what we were for the first two years. To be honest, nothing happened. People would just randomly join us. We weren't really running anything official. I would just post events or information that I would get and that I would post because I was an accelerator manager that I had access to anyway. So I thought that was my way of giving back to the community. But earlier last year, as I was leaving my job, working at a startup, I decided to invest a little bit more time and effort into building soul startups into a bigger community. And I think we started last year with, I think, less than 400 members in January 2019. And now we have almost 1,300. So we made a big push. We ran a few offline events, which were a great success. We revamped the website. We started writing a blog where we have not only ourselves, the organizers, but we also have members of the community share their experiences and knowledge. Yeah, we want to make a better place here in Korea. And I think it's successful because we have been reached out by also government institutions asking us for support and help in building the community and uh, building something together. Exciting. What's the ease of doing business of actually doing a startup? You had some comments in there saying government has some funding, which is great, but then the, the structure around it maybe is not at least foreigner friendly. If somebody came and was excited about the Korean market and came over and wanted to start a business or start a Korean branch of an existing business, how difficult would it be? Well, there's several barriers. First of all, most of the information and most of the profit processes that you have to go through to register your business, your entity are in Korean. So unless you know Korean or you have a partner, you have someone who, uh, who will help you run the business who's Korean, then it's really, really hard. In fact, when I was an accelerator for a program that was bringing in foreign startups into Korea, I would always encourage them please hire a Korean person to do all your bureaucratic registration work and have them as your co-partner, like the, the head of your Korean office, because that makes it much, much cheaper. And it just makes your life so much more easier. That's what I always recommend. So the Korean is also a barrier when it comes to visas. There is a program, a startup visa program, but it's a bit ambiguous. And I think some of the processes around it have not really been thought out to the end by the Ministry of Justice. 
it's a lot of guesswork and you kind of have to be at the mercy of the immigration officer, which you never want to be at. It's not a pleasant place to begin with and it's a not a pleasant confrontation. Last but not least, in a lot, some, not all, but some funds that are available for startups are not available for foreign startups here. And, and you don't know that. And in fact, in a lot of cases, the people who run the funds don't really know, oh, can we give it to a foreigner or can we not? And sometimes they won't give you the funds, not because there's something wrong with your application, but because they rather be safe than sorry. Korea is like in a funky place, right? It's uh, not too small a population, but it's also not that sizable. And then it's a high concentration, 50% of the population around the Seoul metropolitan area. What are the type of startups that you see being successful getting traction, whether they're foreign or domestic? Think of Korea a bit as a good testing market. If you overcome the bureaucratic restrictions, it, it, like you said, it's, it's a, most of the population is concentrated in one place, very highly digitalized, although that's debatable, but very tech savvy compared to other societies. And it's also in Asia. So like if you, your product succeeds here, there's a higher chance of that being able to replicate that success and kind of riding on the wave of that success in other countries. For foreign startups that I see succeeding here is tech-based companies. So AI, IOT, utilizing 5G technologies, a VR company I, I had under my wing went very, very well as well. So I do encourage that sort of movement as well. I've seen a few interesting social impact initiatives in the recent years. I think they, they also came up because Korean government in general has been kind of on the rise with the social impact as well. That direction is definitely worth looking into. The flavor of the month currently in Korea is definitely also healthcare, but that, that and the rest of the world. Healthcare and biotechnology are pretty strong in Korea. We have Samsung Bio, Celtrian, which are kind of leading the initiative. I can say that next year there will be quite a few funding programs for that side of things, as well as also remote and contactless solutions, delivery, ride app, like driver applications and things like that are, are also being looked into. And that is, I think it's similar with the rest of the world because it is driven by the current COVID situation and the necessity for having more technology in those areas. What is the overall economic situation? I mean, now it's it's all, everything is unprecedented. Because of Corona, everybody's kind of in this weird, hazy phase. But I think compared to other countries, like we haven't had that many job losses. Obviously, Korea will report an economic loss this year, but then who won't? For the young people, I think there is a lot of hidden unemployment among the young people on top. And at the same time, there's a lot of hidden elderly poverty. And these are like the two issues that Korea is kind of struggling with. There's the middle class kind of well off, but then there's like those two groups in the society that are struggling a lot. One that's kind of on the exit way and one that's actually trying to join the workforce, but just cannot. Yeah, they do struggle a lot with finding like good, good paid jobs. So like if you find an, any, any job, and even if it requires you kind of to sell, sell your soul to it, I think in case of young people, you hold on to it. In case of elderly people, I know there's a lot of initiatives, but funnily enough, mostly run by foreigners or Korean Americans to, to support them. There's still a little knowledge and awareness of how to do it from the government and the company side. 
suicide rate in Japan is pretty bad. It's a bit undercover, but you see it regularly that trains are stopped and like the covert force, like somebody threw themselves in front of a train is being used. In our case, we throw ourselves from the bridges or other dramatic ways. Yeah, Korea is on the leading side of the OECD list for suicides. And again, it's the young people and the old people. The young people usually because they feel a lot of pressure to perform, like be the best, like have the best grades, get into the best school. The older people because they don't want to be a burden to their family or the society. Yeah, it is a problem. I actually, a couple of years ago when I was translating for a Polish TV crew, we spent the night with the water patrol on the Han River and they get called out when there's like either someone like trying to jump or someone has jumped or they look like they may have jumped. And we, and it was like, it was a very, I was very disturbed for a couple of weeks afterwards. It's really sad. Like a lot of sad and terrifying stories. To round it out, you do some amazing work with the North Korean community. So I work with one of the biggest NGOs here in Korea called Asan Nanon Foundation. And we run a program called Asan Sangwe, which is an entrepreneurship book camp, a three-month entrepreneurship book camp for uh, North Korean resettlers, South Koreans, and foreigners, about 30 people. They work together, form teams, and build hopefully sustainable businesses around it. The whole point is to empower people from marginalized backgrounds, and North Koreans are definitely marginalized here in Korea, empowering them with the knowledge and the skills to be entrepreneurs. So that's what we do. <laughs> Exciting, but not the easiest. It's not only about like teaching them business, it's like teaching them the skills to do a business, but it's also the skill, the teaching them about soft skills and like communication, overcoming their differences, learning to think of themselves as one team, not individuals or not like, oh, Koreans versus foreigners versus North Koreans. So it's a balancing act at the end of the day. What is the level of education of the people who make it out? Do they have some sense of modern technology or is this really your back to the future type of thing, blending in a whole totally different world? Well, on the surface, it's actually pretty good. Like smartphones, no problem. Like they, ma they manage that. But when you dig, dig a little bit deeper, like some of the tools we use, like computer stuff, it turns out that yes, they have a fancy MacBook, but they don't know, know very little apart from turning it on and plugging into internet and they won't tell you they won't say oh i i don't know how to do this because they feel ashamed of not being able to do that so you first of all you have to earn their trust in order to actually hear from them i have no idea what's going on and then you have to learn they have to kind of observe them and know that oh like see the the ice going very glazed and they were like oh we've lost her like she has no idea what's going on here anymore but at the same time, I think the younger generation, they're, I guess younger people are like sponges. So they, they learn pretty quickly. The older one, a bit of a struggle. But then again, my mom took some time, but she finally managed to learn how to use a computer. So I'm not giving up. Thank you very much, Marta. Thank you so much. I unfortunately have to run to my North Korean, but let's catch up soon and hopefully in person. Sounds great. Wonderful. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Good luck. Bye.